Welcome to Shucks About Everything, a literary podcast with your host, Sean Kilpatrick. Episode 2, The Blood, with guest David Kuhnlin. Special appearances from Lee Livinson and Elizabeth Eris Aldrich. Featuring excerpts from young Mr. Kuhnlin's forthcoming early Brian Evanson-esque novella about serial killer Bella Kiss. And including never-before-seen translations of mass murderer Ernst August Wagner. What's your take on the occult? I'm indoctrinated in a satanic cult. It's probably the biggest satanic cult that practices satanic magic in southeast Michigan called Satan House. My great-grandfather was a Rosicrucian who practiced in Trinidad. Right now, the occult is very popular, and I think that has a lot to do with feminism and the ways that Christianity has become kind of like McDonald's. Satanism is just as wholesome as Christianity when it comes down to it. There's not anything inherently evil about any of this stuff, which is why fiction and serial killing adding to the occult element makes it so appetizing. Sontag's got this great book, Against Interpretation, and she just has this brilliant catalog of art from the beginning. She imagines that it was probably incantatory, the effect that art had at the beginning, that it was magical. Aristotle was really into art as therapy, combating Plato's idea that you can't sleep in the painting of a bed, (laughs) which, I mean, it's funny, but well, maybe stick to philosophizing and not art. Bob Flanagan, he was probably the longest survivor of cystic fibrosis at the time. He died in 1996 and was in a lifelong mistress-slave relationship with contracts based on Leopold von Sacher Massach's contracts, which are in the back of Venus and Furs. I think that they actually used his contracts almost word for word. Really heavy medical S&M. Very luckily found a type A personality in Cherie Rose, who whipped him into shape. She would lock him in basements for days at a time and make him write poems. How could it not change the experience of his illness, but also relieve him in some ways? I'm chronically sick also. I mean, I don't have CF. I had a a near-death experience in 2016 in the hospital in an ICU. Things change when you experience something like that. And I mean, I can imagine Bob living with CF or people living with conditions where you're just in pain all the time. You experience things differently than somebody who's not. One of the things that I noticed is that I'm totally attracted to horror. I don't think I read horror novels before 2016. Even working in the genre of fiction, I wasn't writing in the way that I'm writing now. I was really into writing about my illness, actually, doing the kind of cringeworthy work <laughs> that so many artists are, are doing now, people who are thinking about the conditions that house them. So reading people like Sontag and just experiencing the glimpses that I've experienced of Bob Flanagan, I think those two people have really 
undone my understanding of art in general, particularly the fusion of content and form, because Bob was all over the map. I mean, he was a performance artist. He was a comedian. He performed these funny little ditties for all the kids with CF. But then he also hung upside down naked and while Cherie was whipping him above a hospital bed like a bat. And people were going to museums to watch this. What is that? What's happening there? Sontag says good art usually makes people nervous. And when we start to strip art down to its content so that we can talk about it, it's tamed. When a work of art, let's say, it's like, oh, well, I'm writing about my illness and it's helping me to heal. That's awesome. That's this thing that perhaps maybe could be more of a secondary effect of the art, whereas the art in itself maybe is a little bit more indescribable than that and has different knowledge than you have and almost has its own way. Ever since theory was invented, art has had to justify itself in some way. And more often than not, people are fixated on what we've learned to call content. You know, as William de Kooning said once, content is a glimpse, very tiny, this thing that we call content. We're hooked. There's no going back. There's no reason to pine for the infancy of art or anything like that. I think it's important to understand that we've just learned to call these things things. <laughs> Being sick, that's violent enough for me. I've been under the knife several times. I was taking a lot of mushrooms and for whatever reason, the psilocybin in the mushrooms made it so the twilight drugs that they give you when they give you colonoscopies, <laughs> I've had like six of them or seven maybe, they give you these twilight drugs that you're supposedly like semi-awake but then you totally forget everything afterwards or you're supposed to anyway. The colonoscopy I had when I was ingesting a lot of mushrooms, the anesthesia didn't work. And I, I remember everything. They have you on your side, kind of in the fetal position. I'm staring at a wall and I can see for whatever reason, they were giving me fentanyl and I was on four different things, allergy medicines and pain medicine and everything. And But I was seeing the inside of my eye projected on the wall in front of me and screaming <laughs> at the doctors. I mean, it's so embarrassing thinking back on this, but I was screaming for the doctors to give me more anesthesia and they were just telling me, sorry, we can't, this is the most that we can give you. But I felt everything and it just felt like there was a metal claw. I mean, I think they were taking biopsies of my colon and, and then maybe even above my colon. So this tube was going pretty far up and yeah, it just felt like metal claws were opening and closing in me for 30 minutes. The near-death experience. Scheduled to have about six to eight inches of my intestine removed, which had just totally scarred itself shut, which is some strange response that my body has to bacteria and fungus that just is normally in the body, but my body thinks that it's an enemy. So my body's constantly attacking itself. When your body attacks itself like that, just like on the outside of your skin, you get scar tissue. And in medicine, we don't know how to effectively eliminate scar tissue. There's really no way to melt it. And so what it does is it just builds up and builds up. And so when the inside of your intestine is just tearing and ripping and bleeding, just scars and scars until it just scars itself shut. And so they had to cut that out. Everything seemed like it was fine. They had me with a morphine trigger. I had this little green button. I could press that thing every 15 minutes and get a dose of morphine. And I did. I took way too much. Went through withdrawal, which was crazy. Going through morphine withdrawal in the hospital. 
But a couple of days into my recovery, I felt something. I think the best way to describe it is just that it felt like a babbling brook, felt like some water rushing over rocks, but it was in my intestine and it was blood. (laughs) I shit two to three liters of blood, way too much blood to come out at once. I basically passed out, couldn't see or hear or anything. And they tried to give me blood and they had bags of blood going into me two at a time and my body was refusing it. I was saying goodbye to people in the ICU blood just kept coming out. The end of the story, I guess, is just that there was a blood vessel that had burst very mysteriously and was just leaking blood. And then just as mysteriously, it stopped. And then my body started to take the blood. When you're sitting and your balls are floating in a pile of your own shit and blood and you can't, because I had just had surgery. I had just had eight inches of my gut cut out of me. So I couldn't move very much. I was totally helpless the ICU is definitely obnoxiously loud. It's a place that you probably don't want to die. All the walls are glass so that people can see if someone's coating tubes down your throat and shit. I mean, it, that stuff hurts. <laughs> There's definitely a bond that I have with people who have come close for a long time afterwards. I felt like everything was extra. You can kind of do whatever you want. The kind of nihilistic nothing matters, except that nothing matters in the sense that, well, now you can party and have fun and do what you'd like. BDSM in general is here on pop radio nowadays. There's no transgression anymore. And we're in an age that's snuffing out a lot of extremity in art where people don't understand that real pain and trauma can bring elation. Proactive fatalism paved over by the new victimology. Art can kind of capture this feeling when it's not confined by morality. Everybody's a little cop now. The elements that come together to censor art or like a sock, a political sock being turned inside out, one way to the right, one way to the left, and now we're in the left, but it undulates back and forth. Whoever the zeitgeist is arbitrarily leaning toward in, in the media, etc. Moral panic along with Siskel in the 80s about horror movies and the video nasties. Jerry Springer and the satanic panic have just ascended to become an abstraction and an ambient, just a feature of the culture progressivism it feels like the satanic panic of the 1980s and it was like has that ever ended there's just such a intense cultural hatred of goths <laughs> something else that we can pin our problems on i guess if you can get one by solving the murder of Alyssa lamb online by using your all the knowledge that you've gained by watching csi miami or whatever then maybe you'll have a nice wikipedia bio that leads into all of these anti-occult, anti-Eastern religion, anti, I mean, really just anti-anything that's not Judeo-Christian, even things as innocuous as transcendental meditation, anything that threatens the the moral or the religious kind of sensibilities of, of the time. The Artaud version of KISS, what do you make of how little it has to do with KISS? I think it was published in Artaud's collected writings, one of the volumes in there. I like that it depicted him as a doctor because that was one thing that didn't come across in a lot of podcasts and renditions of Kiss's life. Really not a lot written about Kiss in general. And so the Artaud telling of Kiss's life positions him as a doctor who is a teacher. He's obviously a very smart guy, Kiss, very cunning, and it just doesn't come across in a lot of the Halloweenish versions of his life, which paint him as this evil 
serial killer. He spoke eight or nine different languages and was a voracious reader. He was a tinker and a blacksmith and a stable boy. And I mean, he, it seemed like he had like a little shop. I actually just recently came across an image online. There's so much more written about him in Hungarian that's just not translated into English. But if you click through some of these Hungarian newspapers, you can find images of his workshop. There's just so much mystery surrounding Kiss. And one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was his the way that he is physically represented. The main image that's on his Wikipedia is this drawing of him in a soldier uniform. And I think that I've come across maybe one or two other pictures of him, and he looks totally different in all of the pictures. Some people describe him as stout, ugly. Other people say that he was handsome and tall and blue-eyed and blonde hair. Extremely vampiric. We talked about a year ago about how this would be a fun book. I've just read it shitload of occult books. One of the favorite books that I sought out to try to understand vampirism better is written by this mysterious and underground group called Temple of the Black Vampire. You can tell in the back of the book they just do Kindle Direct Publishing. I think that they kind of have to because no one will publish this kind of stuff. They're advocating for ritual violence and dealing drugs and talking about how you want to be a real vampire. You can't just dress up for two hours and go to the goth club. You have to position yourself as like a Charles Manson, you know, walking black hole figure. Kiss is a perfect example of this walking black hole, take on the appearance of what people need you to be or want you to be. And Kiss was doing that constantly, I think, with women after he killed his wife and her lover. He was doing this with all kinds of women. There are a couple people who have written about sightings of Kiss, his life. One of the detectives who supposedly worked on the case between Austria-Hungary and Serbia was somehow in New York City and claimed that he had a photographic memory and saw a kiss on the platform getting on a New York subway. There was something that I translated into English that talked about him working for some Marxist organization in Eastern Europe post-World War I. Lots of overlapping talk of Kiss being involved in different practices. Um, I read that his dad was a practicing astrologer in several places. One of the things that he would have women do for fun when he brought them back to his bachelor pad was look into a scrying mirror or a crystal ball or you know something that kind of distorts the reflection or you put a light behind it or in front of it and the images start to dance in the dark. There was an older book, some anthology of the deadliest killers. And Kiss has a chapter called The Seven Tin Casks, where it's describing this the story from the one that got away. There was this one woman who escaped Kiss and told the authorities about him and where his house was and everything, and crazy that he was never caught. Nowadays, you'd have all the people getting together on Facebook and making a anti-Kiss group, and you'd be locked up quick. Bella Kiss also known as the Vampire of Sinkota, moved to Sinkota, which is a small village on the outskirts of Budapest, around the turn of the 20th century with his wife, Marie. And Marie quickly develops a relationship with a clarinet player in the Budapest Orchestra, whose name is Paul Bikari. They openly have an affair and then vanish. And Kiss claims that Marie and Paul have moved to America together, and Kiss starts putting 
ads in the Budapest newspaper under the name of Hoffman seeking widows. One of his advertisements reads, Widower urgently seeks acquaintance of mature, warm-hearted spinster or widow to help assuage loneliness mutually. Send photographs and details, marriage possible and even desirable. During a period of about two years between Kiss moving to Sinkota and the beginning of World War I, kills at least 24 people, 23 of them women. Seven of them were found in barrels made of tin, and the rest were buried in his garden. In 1914, at the ripe age of 37, Kiss volunteers himself to be deployed in World War I and leaves his house to his housekeeper, Miss Jakubek. She answers the door a couple years into World War I, some soldiers claiming that they need extra fuel and that they've heard that Bellicus had seven tin barrels full of petrol stocked. She grudgingly leads them to either the cellar or he had a work shed out back that the barrels could have been in. When they poke a hole in the top and smell the contents, it's clear that it's not petrol and that it's rotting flesh. And so they end up opening all seven casks and dumping the contents. And all of them but one are older women. Some of them are only identified by the engraving on their wedding rings. I've read in a couple different places that he had several children. Kiss didn't keep any of his kids. He dropped them off at what they call the White Cross. Each corpse had a handkerchief stuffed in its mouth and was strangled with a cord. Some of them still had the cord around their necks, but they were all preserved enough in the wood alcohol to get fingerprints. Wood alcohol was used for embalming in ancient Egypt, uh, but it was totally toxic when ingested or absorbed through the skin, kind of predates formaldehyde. So after the authorities discover all the bodies, along with his really incredible library, I really can't find any record of the books that he had. I think it would be really incredible to, to know what he had read from his ads. He was corresponding with over 200 women. He had received at least 70 marriage proposals. Kiss is injured in Serbia at the hospital finds the placard with Bellicus's name on it. The man's head is wrapped. They unpeel the wrapping. He has the wrong color eyes, wrong color hair. Kiss, he somehow knew that they were coming and he switched bodies. He may have even been in the room. After killing Paul and Marie and ingesting their blood, my guess is that the ritual worked, that his ritual worked. This is from the Black Art of Vampirism that's written by the anonymous group, The Temple of the Black Vampire. This is on practical feeding. It's a common misconception within occult circles that vampirism is a system of ego worship and romanticism. Vampirism has been reduced to a bourgeois class of clubgoers who liberally ask for and receive blood while dressed up in two hours of costume and makeup like a circus performer. It should be made clear that real vampirism has no place for liberalism or the prudent bourgeois, nor is there any need to ask someone if he, she can be used to access blood flow. 
A vampire assumes authority over the cattle of the world. He is a link in the chain of terror, which is the global slaughterhouse, leading men, women, and children alike unto their demise, treading the earth in human form, hungering for domination, fear, and blood essence. I believe it's the sixth piece of the Bella Kiss in my novella, Kiss is traveling across Eastern Europe in his World War I uniform. Around the same time, there was a German sexual predator and serial killer who liked to eat his victims named Karl Grossman. It's possible that they encountered one another. Grossman notoriously sold. He was into killing and eating little girls. Some of them were as young as four years old, would cook them and turn them into sausages, which he would sell. He did have a hot dog stand. I mean, it sounds like a myth, but he had a hot dog stand and was selling these sausages to soldiers during World War I. And he wasn't captured until maybe 1921-ish. So there's a chapter that got published in Black Scats, their Black Humor magazine, where Kiss and Grossman have a conversation about meat. <laughs> Kiss likes the taste of his Grossman sausages, and they um, banter. By the border, we catch wind of sausage stands. The scent bulks up humid, lifting us off our trench feet. Hammers and cutting machines sound across the river. We've stripped our uniforms of anything that catches light, all metal buried in a pagan ritual with the dead. For our poor, beautiful homeland, the boys smile. Their teeth dance yellow. I read their poems while they sleep. Lines shorten the closer we lie, delivered through a collective debridement. I trudge the marine climate of Essen, cobblestone streets of Lunen, under the violent skies of Ham, past fountains risen from the ashes of Brunswick, and emerge in a phosphorescent Berlin. Schnitzel faces burn past me, in hairy laughs of industry. A cow parks itself, dead-eyed, mid-road. Scheisse, doomed relatives of those missing in action, scramble toward any uniform, photographs unfurled. Have you seen my baby? They pant. Auf Wiedersehen, I hum. Their tattered clothes are a combination of musk and almonds, an unforgettable smell. These neoclassical streets bustle during wartime. The pavement breaks off, ornamental as I march. I follow the Spree River till it dead ends in a canal. The canal leads me to a pair of wooden wheels and an umbrella. Grossman's little dogs. Hear this snatch racket? Enough to drive anyone to suicide. Want a sausage or not? They say that kid's abductor left no ransom note. Interesting, no? Behind the stall, I see a rusty meat cleaver, bone fragments. You source your own harvest? The steam runs off his sow bellies. Hands on, he murmurs, presenting them. Cloaked in the shade of his stall, Grossman grinds and spices meat. Blood is caking under his nails. Sat orderly on a checkered tablecloth are seven fine sausages. Some fillings... Sands the teeth, I note. Ah, you're a regular Napoleon, sir. He who said women are just factories for producing children. Have to disagree. How so? Grossman situates himself in the sun, a short span apart from the cleaver, 
He's balding, the only man for miles not wearing a hat. He swipes brown streaks on his brow. A couple dolts walk by in police uniforms, waving non-existent traffic onward, blowing whistles for fun. I lean in. Their pain can produce so much more than a child, such that sex is secondary to its effect. This is perverse in the utmost. Thoughts like that are enough to make me change my address. The screams in my tenement overwhelm one. I sense you know how to inspire silence in a bride-to-be, the gag redeemed as a second tongue. Sir, he is almost pleading. My ladies never roar. They sit liquefied in vats, chattering to their bosoms. An eruption occurs in him, a laugh almost vented. I do grind mine, astute bastard, bone saw pliers, if only the act could last longer than a night. You unicorn, I goad, feeding wrinkled blubber back to the masses. Jaw dogger. I wasn't born till I crushed my first bantling. You keep your flanks preserved and skip the source, hood washer. Put your rubber-stamped trophies in the thunderpot where they belong. Every city gets the drop neck it deserves. Grossman digs to the bottom of the cart presenting a bouquet of meat. Something special. He forks it to me on a greasy bun, strands of hair sticking out. I nip, delicate, on rather unique veal. Free of charge, he grunts. Your crop is beyond biological. Boiled, broiled, fried, or stewed. Mm, the underdeveloped makes my mustache itch. I like it met with a little more fur. Everyone to their proclivity, he smirks. Soon we're surrounded by a swarm of hungry soldiers. In between institutions, he says, I give this war what it really needs. Sustenance. And how do I do that? I make sure no one dies a virgin. He leans in close and whispers, Not even this princess of four mean years. Savoring our chef's product, I observe the Lusenstadt Canal. His work will continue to go unappreciated, except today. My Berlin would be stood with monuments to this messiah's finesse. Bones texture the water. Boat traffic halts. Burly fish dive at the indigestible rest. Citizens match their enthusiasm finishing the missing girl and girls. Architecture like the mandibles of a stag beetle. This city went extinct before I got here. Thousands of human teeth populate the canal, bubbling for seconds of themselves. With the growth of cities... Aztec sacrifice becomes a domesticated ritual, an overpopulated sacrament. Child envoys for the gods fertilize crops when provoked to weep before their slaughter. A single piece of meat hung off a cross travels overseas, condensing the lamb to a shared attraction, similarly internecine but more abstract. Now we're free to embalm ourselves in slow motion. Every tribe to their cubbyhole. 
cubicles inside a light bulb, fogged up with thought, scrambling for new illuminations. The superior universal alignment, a cult of cops and doctors in Brazil, abduct and castrate homeless children. Their UFO-inspired literature identifies, perhaps correctly, that anybody born after 1981 is evil. Bureaucracy in action. Motivational fatalism comes to accompany loss of quality. One only transcends downward. We suffer from an overabundance of venereal know-how. The more knowledge spread, the smaller God got. When information becomes an ambient haze, you click to call context as a dead entity passing out of use to be represented by shittier inquisitions. We can make a God a day, abort it in its stead, grow new ones from the stem. Every object is God flayed. Every good idea degrades once put in practice. That's why style is of note. There seem to be those content to sit around a campfire telling tales. Then there are those merely experimentally parsing smoke. Too mechanical a skill converts talent into theoretical foreplay. The rest are just plain lazy. The writer kicks himself out of every tribe by love of language scrunched or stretched. Soul versus skin, inflation versus amplification. An automation that eradicates itself with every feature. Something alive in the deletion. Syllabic combustion devouring each component. A detonated presence smeared into encryption. Murder on the ears. Rot rendered on the spot. Leonid Andreev named the 20th century. It is the red laugh. Contagious laughter of a wound that doesn't weep, but grows its gap in between anything we see. All we are is just the bulbous facilitation of our shadows. Lo, thy blood-blackened altars. Lo, the lips of priests that pray and feed. While their own hell's worm curls and licks the poison of the crucifix. Algernon Swinburne. They turn their seed to poison, paraphrased in pen, pencil, and poison. Oscar Wilde's essay on Thomas Griffith's Wainwright. Wainwright was a painter of Byron, an acquaintance of De Quincey, a distinguished critic and prose stylist in the manner of Charles Lamb and Jeremy Taylor, a con man and serial killer, possibly framed by his contemporaries for writing mean reviews. De Quincey calls Wainwright a dandy scenester. If only today's scenesters could write like that. A living Zola character painting portraits resembling his victim, strychnine crystals in their coffees stored on his finger in a large ring, doing away with a woman because he said her ankles were too thick, suing the insurance company for not compensating him over one of his victims, losing the case. Wainwright convinces a friend to sign up for insurance with the same company, then poisons him, not for monetary gain or personal affront, just to cost the company. Blood feuds of the future set in verse, scrolling into circulation, varicose between centuries. 1913, the first modern school shooting is in Germany, performed by a teacher, Heinz Schmidt. He brings a thousand rounds of ammunition in his satchel, crouching under desks to present a muzzle against seven-year-old heads. The Jesuits have supposedly murdered his father and must pay. Schmidt goes on to stay in an asylum near fellow mass shooter Ernst August Wagner. Also in 1913, Ernst August Wagner, another teacher, talented, currently untranslated playwright, watches his wife, two sons, and two daughters sleep, then decimates them with a blackjack and a knife. Proceeding to a nearby town on his bicycle, lower portion of his face veiled, he sets fire to several barns, walking around, Mauser semi-automatic pistol in each hand, executing animals and locals. The difficult-to-reload Mausers stall him, and he's beaten by survivors so severely that his hand falls off. 
pardoned into a sanitarium, written about in one of Hermann Hesse's weakest novels, corresponding with officials and writers, having his work, which is influenced by brilliant absurdist Friedrich Theodor Vischer, Vischer, writer of Och Einer, creator of the hilarious Spite of Objects theory, he influences Franz Wernell, who later did the famous song of Bernadette, and is discussed and published, if not posthumously, to little fanfare. A warped sort of example of former Nazi Emito von Dörer's delusional grotesques. Ernst August Wagner believed that the townsfolk knew all about a cow he once coupled with, and that the universe should be eradicated in order to cover up this sin. From what I gather of his pessimistic beyond Schopenhauer plays as I clumsily translate his work, his skill on the page was awe-inspiring, like his other accomplishments. The trauma transmission of the last hundred years rendered art ugly, culminating in the inverse beauty, cubist high-caliber meta-avant-pop irony Larry McCaffrey and Stephen Moore published and documented, retro at its best, vile, explosive vignettes, looped or fractured into a knee-jerk instinct, detourment, the letterist situationist hijacking of billboards, fluxus fuckery necessary for their time, now reduced to theory, pranked the whole of academia, the divorce of art and audience, retired as a social contract, and workshopped for debt. Dry ambient cloud poems aren't written, they're curated and arranged. And write what you know, plain writers tank a million words off their souls, numbed into frivolous vocations their bland outpourings reflect. Dogmatize either style to instigate against other writers and you are just heckling at the scene of the crime. Weak reliance on theory and concept on one end, presence in the myth of originality on the other. Remember quietude, CIA, grandma, foes, and talky, waspy, taste-heavy, breath-enjambment poetry? How they started strong then faded out into their gardens? Millennial virtue hunters, the umpires of equality, sponsored by McDonald's, didn't even start strong and hopefully fade into their hustle before the seed can take another haze code to overcome. This cute chuckle of a polemical screed by comfortable grandfather William Stafford, who wrote one good poem, not this one, is a call to murder for himself alone. Influential writer by William Stafford. Some of them write too loud. Some write the mauve poem over and over. In our time, a whole tribe have campaigned with noisy boots on. They look swashbuckling, but all the syllables finally run and hide. Their swagger makes them feel good, but mobilizes opposition. Listen. These quietude chumps are always telling you to listen in their poems. After a torrent begins, even big rocks have to get out of the way. But at the top of the divide, you can change Mississippi to Columbia with one finger. And I did. But I didn't want the Pacific this big. Message about balancing your shit somewhere in there under all that arrogance. Deep. Where are these mauve poets at? Gen X, MTV, uber-stylized mainstream art on crack flourished in the 1990s, modernism and postmodernism irony exploding into things like Jackass, a series of decadent, nihilistic, irreverent pranks, the best of the best along these lines being perhaps Columbine's failed plot to lure journalists into a human minefield. When Eric Harris blows a girl's head off with a sawed-off shotgun and the butt recoils, breaking his nose, he jokes about how cruel she was to do that to him. Her head is gone. He's the victim. Very millennial. But at least they openly acknowledged this as ironically funny in its horror. That little scene is serious discourse now. The 2000s were the death throes of irony, a path cleared for millennial sincerity, identity profiles, weepy, self-serious, sanctimonious, slanderously hectoring censors out for high school revenge. Mayakovsky, the poetry of strife. 
quote, when you tear along in a car through hundreds of persecuting enemies, there's no point in sentimentalizing. Oh, a chicken was crushed under the wheels. Marinetti's Beauty of Speed lanced along the Earth's orbit. John Davidson's crushing library on our back feels a bit too light to survive anti-literary modernism. Let's freeze our tech in its haze so it becomes solid enough to finally break the skin again. Become clicked-apart irrelevancies, a primordial cyborg with a backlog of excrement in its stride. Stab back at the online lie, hit up those haunches. We are fleas atop a fog, sucking cooperative vapor. Divine some blood, scrounge up some DNA. Get sunk for a sexier dreadnought relay. The following are translations of the works of Ernst August Wagner from Nero. I've faced down life at my own expense, this serious romp, this insane sense. Day in and day out, the one conclusion I'm led to is, what a dread process. Like vomit on an offering, I go spewing off your heads. Pit the tip of my dumb contempt against humanity, I sneer before God on your behalf. He kicks us while we die. Quiver with me upon the tree of life. Refuse and barely asleep in the gentlest breeze. Fruits and leaves will sweep away before the autumn of your age. If I were death, I'd be ashamed to sharpen my scythe on withered grass like you. I mow through icicles of blood, arrowing a split visage. Such pleasure to be had, but death's handiwork becomes a fad. Terminally surfeit. We cartwheel into his arms, seeking welfare. No giggling at Armageddon. The last god dies, and I join in. The Nazarene, 1912, a play by Ernst August Wagner, translated by Sean Kilpatrick. Lee Levinson as Judas. Wagner's preface. Of course, my Jesus isn't historically sound. The Nazarene presents only the pessimism of Ernst Wagner. I ask you not to see in this a degradation of the man on the cross, who I hold in high esteem. The Gospels will always be the best portrayal, deducting the miracles. The real Jesus was no pessimist. He did not even preach the worthlessness of all earthly goods, as is so often asserted. He just warned against their overabundance. He could not be a pessimist because he was healthy. I claim that a healthy and robust person cannot be a pessimist. He also lacked the agonizing consciousness of guilt. I do not think that Jesus was more supernatural than human, but similarly anomalous, a pure man with a free conscience. Such a man will keep his head high even under the most adverse circumstances. If an evil melancholia settles in him, he will extract it. He'll parse the dullest weather with his joy. I do not share this skill. I was a pessimist in the womb, born with weak nerves. My innocence made me mad. I was punished without a sentencing, but I finally earned my verdict. I sit being gnawed through untold sentences. With the Nazarene, I present my thoughts in life. Every word is merely me. Anyone informed might agree that pessimism is a presumptuous and self-seeking vanity. 
I refute myself in my own introduction. No matter, I have no intention of winning anyone over. Not possible. If some mastermind assembled the most beautiful thought construction, explicating insights with compelling logic, the value therein would still fall before this feeling. Many a man delights in his existence. I don't mean to rob anybody of their satisfaction and affirmation of life. However, my death should be an encouraging example for my fellow sufferers. The real pessimists go and do likewise. Derelok, May 21st, 1913. The schoolmaster of Rattlestetten, two months before the massacre. Act 1. Desert. Rocky area, starry night sky. Jesus stands watching the stars for a long time, arms arced wide, fists opening and shutting, everything in slow movements. I raise my hand whenever I see you, no idea whether to bless or scourge. Spurious virtue, bless us. Bless, O Lord, the splendorous stars. Bless the light and life itself. They pan their own cremation. Shining suns, infinite sources of light. Judas, I have something to say to you. Talk, master. You sneak after me like a thief meant to steal my soul. So that you may entice me in your struggle to protect it, I've sifted through my kindling, seeking such a pearl. Ah, how well you pluck your thoughts from where they dwell and free them into words. There's an evil to it. One you spoke first. Sometimes scorn stings less if you snatch it from the slanderer's lips preemptively. No one passes judgment upon themselves so another may confirm it. No trained morality, nor the pity for the unknown horde. You mock my teaching. However could you be my boy? Today's truth is not tomorrow's. What spreads steadily in the morning may wriggle like a capsized beetle in the evening. Thought becomes a constant refutation. You forget to believe. Oh, we believe. No thinking. We believe in naps. Belief is the weary, coma gasp of a soldier who yawns beside his wounds, saying, I'll kill myself with your sword by sitting still. Is the master chased by his lesson towards something new? He who heaps a mountain of nymphs atop his talk? There's wisdom for you, rolling around a rope dance, juggling for show. <laughs> Why be wise if you can't get off? My wisdom is a bitter herb for the children of the world. Flesh and blood resist. Makes my insides clench up. Must be a rotund delivery to inspire such pangs. Let folks know the children of pain sniffle without vitality. Birth and death come and go, endlessly recycled suffering. Master, you have a physique and never sneeze. Why accuse life? How ungrateful. I see the blind man's walking cane miss its mark. I hear the cripple curse the straight-spined many. I smell rot and mold everywhere. I absorb everyone's agony. How covetous. I'm punished to remain me. All beings contribute unpleasantries. Why warm yourself at strange feet like one of Lazarus's dogs? Roll the tides back into the sea, sir. I should have aborted myself in the womb and named the effluent after heaven's pearly gates. Aren't we a lurking haphazard contracted in stages? No one walks away from life. I surrender to whatever fever grips me. And never fret the sun, as long as I'm capable of rising with it. 
People shut their eyes to their own withering. Are you ever only vicariously relieved via schadenfreude? How does he who ponders so much death advance? You'd be better off stuck in line. Judas, Judas, revel in every bruise. Care enough to acknowledge foreign torment. Interrogate the dark with me. We are present in hell, despite acknowledgement after the fact. Those who deny it despair in closets. Those who mock it embrace the noose. Pockets weighted by coin help the neck snap all the quicker. And as you swing, will you dismiss misery? My own. What of others? <laughs> they can cut in on the dance. I'm not really roused by hanging. Your bad influence. No, I don't want my breath cut short. My death should make a racket. A show-stopping legacy. Enough tolerantly stoic martyrdom. I'm not the level of alert necessary to count the serpent's wounds. I will crush that information from his scales. Deliver us from age and ailment, dread and grief. From the bladder of death. Lordy, lordy, is this how you wish to live? I want salvation from life. I crave annihilation. tired of being the victim. That shit gets old real fast. I told her to stay still and I lightly cut her neck, making sure not to go too deep. I wanted decoration for people to know I was there. Rewind. She came in. She had drugs and I didn't, so I let her in. Where are my knives? I asked her, loud enough so she'd hear me over her headphones and insufferable always there Zoom call. In the bag, she said, without looking away from the screen. I loved those knives. I could see why she stole them. Spyderco knives. They felt light in my hand. I remember my mouth making an O when I saw the inside of her arm. There is no name I want to call it. Wow, I really fucked you up, huh? That looks really bad. My eye looked like it had almost popped out or something, like I was one last punch away from that one Iroguro everyone has seen. You should get some help. She looked like she didn't know her body could do that. I drew a line on her shoulder, lightly, like a painter. It opened her skin up. When I put the knife to her neck, I remembered the way Parker put the same knife to my thighs. Slowly, delicately, almost not touching, and like magic, red lines would appear later. 